Hi, this is James Barris. I hope you find this talk supports you in your practice. If you'd like to support my teaching, you can use the donate button underneath my picture on Dharma Seed to do that. Your support is greatly appreciated. The first few days of a retreat, the typical question that comes up is, what am I doing here? <clears throat> and then after you settle in, which I think most of you have by now, uh, that question usually is replaced by another question, which is, am I doing it right? And there's a whole lot of ways that we can question ourselves in our practice. Am I doing it right? So many instructions. What do I do now? We've expanded to the fourth day and fifth day, and now there's thoughts and feelings and sensations, and how do I keep track of it all? Or now something's happening in my meditation I didn't bargain for, and I'm kind of going through an emotional upheaval, and what does this mean, and how do I get back on track? Or I've got so many thoughts, I was just mindful yesterday, and I can't get there at all for the life of me. It's interesting to notice your process as you go for an interview, just the, the quality or the, the feeling that you have going in an interview when you're having a good meditation or coming from a good space as opposed to really being out there in la-la land. Just how do you feel about that? And sometimes you can say, wow, I really got it going now. Great, my interview's in two hours. Oh shoot, it's changed. Yeah. I, I remember it was my second retreat where I was just plagued by doubt about midway through the retreat. I just didn't know what I was doing and I was a phony and everybody else was a phony and the whole practice was weird. And I tried to sit, I couldn't sit, I tried to walk, it was pacing back and forth. Finally I just said, oh, the heck with this, I'm just going to relax. And I went up to my, my space at this retreat center and there was a picture of uh, Neem Karoli Baba, um, who to me kind of helps me see the light side of things, kind of smiling up at me saying, hmm, getting pretty freaked out, aren't you? And in a moment, the whole wave of doubt and thickness of doubt just vanished. And I saw, wow, how absurd that, that was. And I got so excited, wow, I conquered doubt. Right? <laughs> you can hear the punchline coming. And I knew I was going to have an interview about, oh, six hours down the road. I couldn't wait to tell my teacher that I conquered doubt. Between that time and the time of the interview, I went through so many different mind states. Exhilaration, joy, confidence, a bit of excitation and then kind of exhaustion and confusion and despair at having lost it. And I finally went into the interview and was asked, well, what's happening? And I said, it's always changing. He said, that's it. You got it. But we have so many thoughts on wanting to do it right, 
And usually the source of the problem is some idea that we have about what right would mean. Some quality in the meditation, some quality in, in our being, in our confidence. And the idea that comes when we say we're not matching up to our expectations or now I'm filled with self-judgment or now I'm lost in this obsessional pattern again creates some deep confusion in us. And all, it, all that has happened is that we've attached to some idea out of the thousands of thoughts that have come through one or two thoughts really take the center stage saying this is not what a good yogi does or whatever it happens to be our self-image or our doubting comes up we've just believed that idea and if we didn't believe that idea if we saw it as simply another arising and passing in the whole show it would be no problem. Just the thought of self-judgment coming and going. What has created some kind of struggle in your practice in the last day or two? What idea can you, can you get in touch with? If there's been any kind of frustration or, or judgment, what's the idea that you've believed? that you've taken to be real. Just think for a moment. And what would it be like if you could let go of that idea as being true and saw it for what it is, just an empty bubble arising and staying for a while? It's really important to understand the nature of thought and how we can work with thought. And so that's what I want to talk tonight about, skillful ways to relate to thought and work with thoughts. First, I want to state what you probably know and have heard many times intellectually, but perhaps sometimes forget when you get caught. The nature of thought is empty. It's as real as we make it. And this is from the Buddha, from the Dhammapada. He says, We are what we think. All that we are arises with our thoughts. With our thoughts, we make the world. Your worst enemy cannot harm you as much as your own thoughts, unguarded. But once mastered, no one can help you as much, not even your father or your mother. The power of thought is enormous. We can have a thought and believe it, and all of a sudden our whole reality and our system is transformed. An exercise that I find kind of interesting that I, I share sometimes, I'll, I'll share with you. Just try this for a moment. Close your eyes and I'll say a word and notice what happens. 
trouble. Trouble. Notice the images, notice how it feels inside. Now take a couple of breaths and erase the blackboard. I'll say another word. Kindness. Kindness. Notice what it feels like inside. Okay, you can open your eyes if you like. You notice any difference between those two? Just two, two words plopped in the mind with no story even around them, and they can affect our whole being. Can you imagine what happens when we keep on replaying a story again and again that's troublesome? And the usual mysterious way that it works is we get snagged by our troubling thoughts. Somehow, those are the ones that we get frightened by and need to ward off, we think, and in the warding off, make them bigger and bigger. And then we get caught in this whole, this whole melodrama. We identify with our thoughts, taking them to be real, or taking them to be my thought. I'm good for having that thought. I'm rotten for having that thought. I hope nobody finds out what a rotten person I am for that thought that came through. It sounds kind of silly when you, when you get a perspective on it, but that's what we do. <clears throat> and thought often leads to more thought, triggers other trains and, of thought, and so we find ourselves lost, not just on one particular tape, but it leads to 10 other ones. I came across this um, Calvin and Hobbes cartoon. Cal Calvin says, here I am, happy and content, but not euphoric. <laughs> mm. So now I'm no longer content. I'm unhappy. My day is ruined. I need to stop thinking while I'm ahead. Just one little thought changes the direction of the whole train. There's a whole proliferation of thoughts that starts to happen if we don't see clearly what goes on. What in, uh, in Buddhist terminology is called papancha, this proliferation of thoughts where a thought grows into a story or triggers a reaction, an emotional reaction, and then spins into a flood of other thoughts. I remember when I was um, first starting out in high school, this is a, I remember this like 35 years or so later, I was going to a, a school, a special school in New York that was very um, rigorous and competitive and I had done pretty well in my school career up till that point. And there was a chemistry quiz that was sprung on the class after uh, a couple of weeks. And we were all kind of floundering around in this course anyway. 
And out of 10 questions, I think the, the average grade was, a, uh, was four right, four out of 10. And I got two out of 10. I got a 20 on this test. I had never gotten below 75 on, on any of my tests before, hardly ever on that, that level. But I got a 20 on this test, and I remember, just like yesterday, in bed that evening, I, I didn't tell my, my folks right away. It was just, I had to digest this. And I played this out where I flunked out of high school. <laughs> I was no longer on a school career. I would take some kind of a, a job that was unskilled and get bored. And actually, I had myself ending up on the Bowery in Skid Row, really. <laughs> And I really believed it. It was amazing. That's how thoughts spin out into this whole reality. You can perhaps get a sense of it on the retreat. Maybe you see somebody who you like and there starts the Vipassana romance syndrome and you are gone into this fantasy of you know, years from now and you might be gone for an hour or so, and then you realize, wow, okay, come on back here. Or with the metta meditation, a lot of people are doing metta. And metta brings up a lot of other stuff. So there you are, trying to do the metta, and you realize, I'm not feeling loving at all. Ugh. In fact, I don't think I can feel love. And that was because when I was young, <laughs> so-and-so didn't love me. And in fact, I've never been loved. And in fact, I'm not lovable. Of course not. It sounds funny, but this is something that people very often come into in interviews. You know? So if, if this is true for you, just know you have a lot of company as, as I share this. So, how to work with this predicament? The first strategy, which is the one that you've probably heard, well, as long as you've been doing this practice, is mindfulness. And it's the best strategy, because as you see clearly that you are thinking, you're not caught in the middle of the thought. And today we included in the instructions thinking as part of the process. Okay, so simply to notice it with kindness. If you are noticing it with any kind of a judgment at all, then you get snagged again. There's aversion fueling the whole process. But if you can notice it just as another part of your experience, just like hearing or breathing or a sensation, ah, thinking, thinking. And the tone, if you do like using the mental noting, the tone can have a very powerful relationship to what your experience is by just saying it softly. If you start to hear an edge in the noting, just changing the tone can change your relationship to it. Most of the time, if you recognize that thinking is happening without getting into the content, the thoughts disappear because you're not fueling them, you're not in the middle of them. And then you can just simply go to whatever else is happening in your breath or your, your body. 
But sometimes they don't disappear because there's such a power to them that the mindfulness isn't strong enough to, um, to deal with them. And so I thought tonight that I'd share with you the Buddha's advice on dealing with distracting thoughts when the mindfulness isn't strong enough. The removal of distracting thoughts. This is a, a sutta called the Vitaka Santana Sutta. Now notice what your mind does with that. Ah, the secret teachings. <laughs> now I've got a whole new bag of tricks. Okay, just to notice that. But it's, it's an interesting list. And I'd like to share them, uh, these with you. Five different methods of dealing with distracting thoughts. And then the implications for um, using these various methods. He says, there is a case when unskillful thoughts connected with desire, aversion, or delusion, the big three, greed, hatred, and delusion, arise in a yogi while referring to and attending to a particular theme. That is, when you get snagged in a particular thought pattern. At this time, the yogi should attend to another theme, different from that one, connected with what is skillful. And while attending to this other theme, those unskillful thoughts are abandoned and subside. Just as a skilled carpenter or his apprentice would use a small peg to knock out, drive out, and pull out a large one, in the same way, the yogi steadies the mind right within, settles it, unifies it, and concentrates it. So what he's saying in that first one is, if you get caught in a particular thought pattern, an unwholesome thought pattern, and the mindfulness isn't strong enough, you might substitute a more skillful thought pattern to replace it. And we do this in lots of different ways. You have done this, I'm sure, in your own practice. For instance, when you have a lot of anger, doing the metta, the loving-kindness, is a skillful substitution. If the mindfulness isn't strong enough to go right in to explore the nature of anger, doing some metta can be very helpful for yourself, bringing a benefactor to mind, just as a way to soften the heart so that then you can go directly into the experience. <clears throat> when you have a lot of doubt in the practice or in yourself or in teachers, the substitute skillful thought for doubt is faith bringing somebody to mind, or bringing the refuges to mind. I take refuge in the Buddha. I take refuge in the Dharma. I take refuge in the Sangha. And that can bring about some brightness or some inspiration that allows you to, again, create enough space that you can explore doubt. If you have a lot of desire lust, attachment, grasping, reflecting on impermanence, as Anna was talking about last night. Okay. 
seeing what it is that you're so fixed on and you're so attached to, what's that going to look like in 10 years or 20 years? What's this particular attraction, the package, going to look like? What's you won't even have this thought probably in another three hours. Just reflecting on impermanence, seeing how fast they come and go. If you're plagued by guilt and you have declared yourself a rotten, no good person, thinking of something that you've done that's skillful in your life, that's been really a kind, spontaneous act, just a moment of reflection to see, hmm, okay, I'm not all bad, can create a little bit of break in the whole, uh, the whole cloud. So these substituting thoughts can be a skillful use, and you've probably employed them a number of times in practice. On to the second one. <clears throat> if unskillful thoughts still arise in the yogi while attending to this other theme, that is, after you've substituted, connected with what is skillful, if it still doesn't work, the yogi should scrutinize the drawbacks of those thoughts. Hmm, truly, these thoughts of mine are unskillful. These thoughts of mine result in stress. As the yogi is scrutinizing the drawbacks, those skill, unskillful thoughts will become abandoned and subside, perhaps. <laughs> and here's the image he uses. Just as a young woman or a man fond of adornment would be horrified, humiliated, and disgusted if the carcass of a snake or a dog or a human being were hung from their neck. <laughs> in the same way, you see the danger and the drawback in these thoughts. Okay. So, <laughs> fairly, fairly graphic image. Okay. There are some graphic images in a lot of these parables. Just imagine you're about to go into a train of thought, and if you can give yourself a moment's pause, wait a second, where is this going to lead me? If you just have a, that moment's pause, you might decide, well, maybe not, maybe not. I had an experience this, this fall. I was sitting in, um, at IMS for the first half of the three-month course. <clears throat> this is a little bit um, embarrassing, but what the hell. Um, as many of you know, I'm quite a football fanatic, right? And um, it was, it's quite, a, it's quite a, a let go to give up six Sundays in the middle of the football season when your team is as good as my team is. <laughs> and I, um, I knew the schedule very well. I had it in my wallet. So um, every, every Sunday I knew, oh, 
Atlanta at 1 p.m., you know, or L.A. at 4 p.m., you know. And um, as Friday came around, I started to have more and more thoughts about Sunday coming. It's, it's just in my system as, as it was, as it would be every Sunday, just kind of anticipating. And I could feel it building, start to think, oh, Sunday is Atlanta. And then, and I'd go on this train of thoughts about the team, about my favorite player, and, and it, I'd say, oh no, this is not what I'm doing here. You know, this is not what I want to be doing. And each it got more and more intense as it came up to the three-hour period from one to four on Sunday, <laughs> where I was kind of like, I know it's happening, and I kind of make a, an image of how the game went, and I kind of get exhausted after, as I usually do at the end of a game, and, and it would subside till around, by Monday, I could kind of, you know, let go until... Friday came around again, right? and this went on for about um, three games worth, and finally I said, I've got to do something about this, and I just, I would start to, as, as it got closer, just start to see when I had a thought of Steve Young. Uh, <laughs> just, I could feel it coming, and I just frame the whole thing into football thoughts. And I just put it in this package. I didn't want to touch that one. Just Steve Young, all the football thoughts. <laughs> it worked. It, I'm glad it worked. I had to use it quite a few times during the weekend. But there was a possibility of not getting into the whole train before I, I forgot what was going on. You might notice this when, again, you have a, a VR thought kind of coming up, or a VV thought, in case you aren't familiar with the terminology, Vipassana Romance, VR, or VV, Vipassana Vendetta. <laughs> and somebody just bugs you, whatever they do is not right, and they're the problem in your practice here, and there you see them coming, <laughs> just notice the, the danger or the drawback in getting lost in that train of mind. And as soon as you can notice it clearly, ah, VV, or whatever you want to call it, there's a possibility of getting space around it. Or whatever your top theme that's going on, there's something very uh, wonderful about putting a frame around the whole thing and naming it. As soon as you name it, you aren't trapped by it and seduced by that proliferation. <coughs> then you can come back to the meditation or just get a sense mindfully of how you can uh, deal with it. <coughs> On to the third. If the unskillful thoughts still arise in the yogi while scrutinizing the drawbacks of those thoughts, he or she should produce forgetfulness and inattention with regard to those thoughts. (laughs) 
Just as a man or a woman with good eyes, not wanting to see forms that had come into range, would close their eyes or look away, in the same way, the monk steadies his mind, concentrates and settles, unifies it. And what that means is turning your attention elsewhere. That you don't have to stay always with what's predominant. Sometimes that's the, uh, the typical instruction. Whatever is arising in the mind, whatever is predominant, be with it. You don't have to do that. Don't take that so literally. Sometimes if you're quite fatigued or exhausted because there's a strong emotional state that you've been wrestling with, and the mind says, well, that's what's here. Maybe I should stay with it. You don't have to do that. You can turn the attention elsewhere. Same way with a strong physical sensation. If you find that it just keeps on recurring each sitting and that becomes your meditation, sitting after sitting after sitting, so that it gets to the point where the bell rings and you tense up, oh no, in there in the boxing ring again. You know, I don't know if I can handle this. It can get very discouraging. It might be a time to just turn the awareness elsewhere I find it helpful if, you find, if you're really battling something to be mindful for just a manageable chunk of time, maybe a minute or two. Okay, let me fully be with this. Let me allow it to be here. And then if you're finding yourself exhausted and you've done that a few times, just back off. Open up to sounds. Open up to breathing. You don't have to stay with things. Whatever is going to support your mindfulness, that's the key. I have a phenomenon that some people do of um, often having a jukebox going on in my head. Because I love music, I love to sing, and, um, and songs that I hadn't remembered from 20 years ago come popping up, you know, my boyfriend's back or whatever it is. You know. <laughs> I'm sorry, I don't know if that, I shouldn't have done that. Well, <laughs> this last retreat, by the way, at, in Barry, um, at one point Jimi Hendrix came on, and I thought I was a big Jimi Hendrix fan. I said, great, all right, he, he I can hang out with. After a solid week of, I think we better wait till tomorrow, I was going out of my gourd, right? But. What you can do is just let it play in the background. You don't have to keep on noticing hearing, 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 hearing. Just let it play in the background. You don't have to be doing anything with it. And it plays itself out after a week or however long. Sometimes what I do is actually, I, if it's a particularly strong and intense song, I'll switch to another record that's a bit slower and more, more gentle because it seems like there's something that wants to get played in the jukebox. So, turning your attention elsewhere. It's not cheating, it's skillful. On to the fourth. If unskillful thoughts still arise while producing forgetfulness and inattention with regard to those thoughts, then the yogi 
should attend to the relaxing or stilling of thought processes with regard to those thoughts. As he or she is attending to the relaxing of thought processes, those unskillful thoughts are abandoned or subside. Just as the thought would occur to a man or a woman walking quickly, why am I walking quickly? Why don't I walk slowly? So they walk slowly. Then the thought might occur, why am I walking slowly? Why don't I stand? So they stand. Then the, ca- the thought may occur, why am I standing? Why don't I sit down? So they sit down. Then the thought may occur, why am I sitting? Why don't I lie down? So they lie down. In this way, giving up the grosser posture, taking up a more refined one, relaxing, relaxing the heart, relaxing the mind. And in the same way with our meditation, when the mindfulness is not strong enough and we find ourselves caught and confused, we can simply bring some space into the heart. Whatever will help us do that. Anna talked about spaciousness and relaxing the grasping from that same passage want to read a few more lines happiness cannot be found through great effort and willpower but is already here in relaxation and letting go don't strain yourself there's nothing to do let the game happen on its own springing up and falling back without changing anything and all will vanish and reappear without end Wanting to grasp the ungraspable, you exhaust yourself in vain. As soon as you relax this grasping, space is here, open, inviting, and comfortable. So you might find, if you've gotten yourself into a tizzy, that the most skillful thing to do is to go have a mindful cup of tea or go have a mindful walk out in the desert instead of the meticulous, slow walking, precise meditation, to somehow open up the field and create some space, again, as a skillful means, not as a cop-out or as, um, as avoidance, but as a skillful means so that you can bring some balance to your heart, heart and mind. Just as an interesting aside, another interpretation of that, uh, of that fourth one that I've seen is stilling the thought processes can also mean going to the source of where the thoughts are coming from, what is fueling them. And so another way to interpret this is if you find yourself in a very continuous thought pattern, than to come down one level and feel what kinds of feelings are underneath. What is it that's not being acknowledged? How can I open up and not struggle on the content level to just feel the source of that? And in that feeling it, there's an ease and a stilling and a direct connection with what's true. And now on to the fifth. And I read this with um, 
some, some caution. If unskillful thoughts still arise in the yogi while attending to relaxing of thought processes, then with teeth clenched and tongue pressed against the roof of the mouth, the yogi can beat down and crush those thoughts <laughs> with his intent. <laughs> Just as a strong person seeing a weaker, seizing a weaker person by the head or throat or shoulders would beat them down, You have to remember the Buddha was from the warrior caste <laughs> and there's sometimes those kinds of images. That method should be done with great care. <laughs> but there's something that it's actually pointing to that's quite possible and that is you can bring a real firmness at times to your heart that says, okay, this is enough. If you have any kind of aversion in there, if you are hating the fact that you're in the middle of those patterns, you will just fuel them. But if there can be like a firm parent with their child that's gotten into some trouble, just saying, no, this is enough you might find, sometimes people find that it actually can work. So just play around with that one too. All right, so what's the lesson in all of this? Here are five other methods besides mindfulness. The thing that I get from reading this discourse is that there's no one right way. There's no one formula that says, this is the way you should do it all the time. That there's lots of different strategies and lots of skillful means to bring to our practice. Sometimes I think that if somebody came into an interview and saw five different teachers, they might get five different responses just depending upon where the teacher was at that day or how they sensed the yogi was, uh, was working. And they might all be, probably all would be, skillful ways to deal with something. Lots of different ways to work with practice. All in support of the general guideline, what is going to help me be most present and really understand experience. So, Given that there's so many different ways, how do you know who to trust? What I get from this particular discourse is it's imperative to start to trust yourself, to become your own authority. And if you have a sense that something will be in support of the mindfulness, to trust that. <coughs> This is what the Buddha advised when he warned the, the Kalamas not to take anybody's word as the ultimate truth. No teacher or book or even the Buddha. Look for yourself. Ehipasako. Come and see for yourself, it says in the chants. 
But we forget that because we're so quick to give our power over to the authority. And when you come into an interview, certainly it's a, a very vulnerable place. And, and if you have some trust, it can be a very skillful use of some guidance. But not to, rem not to forget that ultimately you are exploring for yourself. You know, as the story that Jack tells when he was seeing Ajahn Chah not acting very much like his idea of, of uh, an enlightened person and Ajahn Chah saying, it's a good idea, I don't fit your image of enlightenment. Otherwise, you'd be thinking that the Buddha is outside of yourself. That, that is where the Buddha is. So, it's a kind of balance, as I say this, trusting yourself, but it doesn't mean to completely disregard any suggestions or advice that comes to you. Because when you come into an interview, it's like a reality check. A reality check with somebody who is um, familiar with some of the territory and is, and is here to assist you discover for yourself. When I sit on retreats, I go to the interviews. And it's very, very helpful just to get some kind of a, a sense of, of what's going on. If you decide not to follow advice that's given to you, then know why. Is it out of being a rebel? Is it because you want to be independent? Is there a certain sense of knowing it all and you're going to show that you're right? Or is it that you just get a sense, this I don't think is going to work for me now. So let's try it a different way. Maybe after you've tried it for a little while and it doesn't seem to click, okay, let's try a different way. And it would be good to let the teacher know what you're doing or why you're doing it. It's a very delicate thing how we hold our relationship with our teachers. We can idealize them. I remember when I, when I first was um, exposed to the practice and I was so in love with the Dharma, but I thought that the teacher was, was really where the truth was. And I remember the first time I went in for, uh, for an interview Actually, it wasn't in a retreat, it was uh, at Naropa Institute. And it was uh, Joseph Goldstein was hanging out in his apartment. He was lying down. He said, come in. And I walked in, and he, there he was lying down. I said, oh, you lie down too? Yeah. <laughs> you can really get out there with it. He said, yeah, usually. Yeah. We can idealize them. We can trust them deeply. We can have some resistance to them. We can be skeptical. We can get a sense that we need to individuate from them and show them that we really, or show ourselves that we can have some strength and independence and somehow start to find fault in everything they do. And I've seen this in, in myself, with my own, with some teachers, people who, on thinking and reflecting about, I should have deep gratitude for the commitment and the, the caring of sharing the Dharma, that I just kind of 
was ready to knock off their pedestal. Oh, they're not such a hot shot after all, huh? And I have seen that with many teachers. It was a pattern that, that I would do. That is something, perhaps, is a phase that, that people go through. But to see what is behind the teacher's intention in sharing, in sharing the Dharma, and see what you're doing with that relationship. What can we expect from our teachers when they, when they help us? Well, we can expect some integrity, some basic kindness and good intention to support you in practice, some understanding and wisdom, some inspiration because of their love of Dharma or whatever it is that, that you can sense has uh, kept them involved and dedicated all those years. Sometimes we can get inspired by talks. And you can expect some um, good guidance. But with that, we have to bring certain qualities of respect and honesty, a sincerity, and if there is a, a, a helpful relationship, some level of trust between you so that you're working on the same team. But ultimately, the teacher points back to yourself points the student back to themselves to see this is where the truth is. This is from uh, Albert Schweitzer. says, Each patient carries his own doctor within him. They come to us, doctors, not knowing that truth. We are at our best when we give the doctor inside each patient a chance to go to work. That's what we can do. And that's what I think any really good teacher does to show that that's where the wisdom is. If you hear something that seems right on, it's not because the wisdom is out there, it's because it touches a place inside of you that says, yeah, that's right. And more and more we can have confidence to start to listen carefully to what's inside of us is from Ajahn Sumedho. He says, What do Buddhas know? What does the one who knows know anyway? The one who knows knows that these changing conditions are not self. The one who knows knows that if it arises, it passes away. You don't have to know any more to be a Buddha. Being the Buddha means knowing by observing, not by believing the scriptures or me. See for yourself. Just try to find a condition that arises that doesn't pass away. Is there something that's born that doesn't die? Be that Buddha who knows by putting energy into experiencing your life here and now. So we can develop a sense of trust, not even in ourselves so much, 
not in our thinking mind, but in our awareness. Trust in the awareness in this moment. That's all we can go by, by our awareness and trusting in the sincerity of our intention to wake up. I mentioned this at the closing of the last retreat. The, uh, the people were leaving that uh, last year I was fortunate to, to be part of a conference with the Dalai Lama. Um, and uh, he was asked a number of questions. He was asked about how do you deal with fear when it's so immense all around? And then the, the next day he was asked, how do you deal with suffering, the enormity of the suffering that you, you've gone through and your people have, have gone through? How do we deal with suffering? And he gave the same answer for both questions. He said, my sincere motivation is my protection. And if you can stay in touch with that, the sincerity of your motivation for practice, the sincerity of your intention, and simply bring your awareness to this moment to see what's true, this is doing the practice. So dealing with all the different thoughts and confusions, all the different ways to deal with it, trust your intention to wake up and your intuition to see what will be of greatest support to it. I'll close with, again, from the Buddha. He says, his last words, or near his last words, speaking to Ananda, Therefore, Ananda, be ye lamps unto yourselves, be ye a refuge to yourselves, Betake yourselves to no external refuge. Hold fast to the truth as a lamp. Hold fast to the truth as a refuge. Look not for a refuge in anyone besides yourselves. And those, Ananda, who either now or after I'm dead shall be a lamp unto themselves, shall betake themselves to no external refuge, but hold fast to the truth as their lamp, and hold fast to the truth as their refuge, shall not look to refuge to anyone besides themselves. It is they who shall reach the very topmost height. But they must be anxious to learn. So, let's sit for a few minutes. This talk was given by James Barris at Insight Meditation Society on April 22, 1995. It is an offering of the Dharma Seed. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.